Well, welcome to Heart of the Matter podcast. I'm Chris O'Connor, Principal Investigator of the Heart Flare Collaboratory, and we're continuing our series on looking on how we can improve the ecosystem of, of research in the heart failure arena. And today's topic is looking at uh, some of the recent decisions that have been made by the uh, FDA and the advisory committees that support advice to the FDA uh, around three different programs, the TopCat spironolactone in HEFPEF program, Paragon HF, which looked at secubitral valsartan in patients with preserved ejection fraction, and the most recent uh, advisory committee review of omacamptin macarbal, which a drug being developed for patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. And we're going to start at the top with TopCat, but I first want to introduce our distinguished panel today and starting with uh, Joanne Lindenfeld. Hi, I'm Joanne Lindenfeld. I'm a heart failure cardiologist at Vanderbilt University. Thank you, Joanne. Peter Carson? I have been a, I'm currently retired, but I've been a heart failure cardiologist at the Washington VA Medical Center. And I am currently in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, and I sometimes host our moderator, Chris O'Connor, down here. That's all I'll say. That was benign this time. John Tierlink. Thanks, Chris. I'm I'm John Tierlink. Um, I'm at the San Francisco VA Medical Center as a heart failure physician, and also uh, very honored to be the president of the Heart Failure Side of America this year. Thank you, John. Orly. I am Orly Vardeni, and I'm a pharmacist, and I'm located at the Minneapolis VA um, and University of Minnesota. And uh, Bill Abraham. Yeah, hi, Bill Abraham, professor of medicine at The Ohio State University, heart failure cardiologist and clinical trialist. Thank you, Bill. Well, in December 2020, we had uh, two interesting reviews by the advisory committee to the FDA, the uh, to the cardiorenal uh, panel. And uh, the first one was the TopCat trial, a trial with spironolactone in patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction. And this was really a, an analysis uh, of this trial and whether the label could be expanded for spironolactone in patients with heart failure, uh, indicated in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. And 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 I may ask uh, Peter to, to jump in and, and comment on, you know, the Advisory committee voted in favor eight four, but there was a lot of split uh, feelings about whether the one trial was robust enough to change the indication, and was there enough supporting evidence? And was that trial did it have too many problems to, to be a standalone? So I'll I'll start Peter with you and and say what are your thoughts? You you were you've been involved in the this space for a long time. Uh, well, thank you, Chris. I uh, was recused out of that meeting, uh, unfortunately, but uh, I would have voted against the indication, uh, expanding the indication, and for a number of reasons. Um, you know, one thing we often say is that trials get kind of points for style, so to speak. They're well done, they're well designed, et cetera. And uh, for me, TopCat doesn't really fit that. And the particular protocol problem was in what was described as stratum one, which allowed patients to get in with what is described as a hospitalization with 12 month, for within 12 months in which heart failure was a major component. It is not what we usually find uh, in history of heart failure hospitalization as a criteria for entry where it is the primary reason for heart failure. So this uh, opened the door, particularly in Eastern Europe, to the enrollment of patients who ended up having a remarkably uh, low event rate and there was little benefit of spironolactone to be found, and that was half the trial. Um, there was a lot of question about this, what was going on in Georgia and Russia with the enrollment of these patients, came to the data monitoring board, and um, they indicated that they ended up thinking that a lot of these patients were ischemic heart disease because of the leniency of the uh, uh, definition for entry. So this uh, markedly, this took away the ability of the trial to be favorable on its primary endpoint, if it would have been. Uh, and one is left then with this mixed up um, group, uh, subgroups really, 
uh, where it's hard to tell where spironolactone works and, and where it doesn't and how you would label it. So for example, do you label it and say that it's for patients in whom natriuretic peptides were elevated, but they do not have uh, a uh, uh, previous hospitalization for heart failure where it is an important part of the admission or the management? How do you do that? And then finally, at, at the end, with a whole bunch of conflicting signals regarding that group, including in the US, not just in Eastern Europe, um, you're then left with, with the issue that the drug is usable in the United States and patients. Patients won't be denied this therapy. And since most HEFPEF patients have hypertension, one could reasonably use this drug without expanding the indication. So I would have voted against it um, for the, the issues that I just uh, elaborated on. Well, you're a tough guy. And uh, I'd like to hear from other members of the panel because that's you do a large outcome study. You have a large subgroup that stands alone called North America. The interaction p-value is highly significant. There's enough events in that group to be a standalone trial. And yet you can't seem to move to find that, that that's enough evidence. Joanne? Well, I agree with Peter. I never know how to predict Joanne's responses. This, this has made my day. Ten years lesson as the senior associate editor, Jack, I never can predict Joanne's responses. I, uh, well, first, I think the Europeans say, if I'm correct, that the test of interaction um, for that, you know, moving out, out of Georgia, moving those patients out was not positive. So while it seemed like a very good story, I believe the interaction test for the patients in Georgia versus others was that's Not correct. statistically significant. So that to me posed a problem. And I, I just think that while I'm sympathetic and I believe it probably works, this is one trial whose primary endpoint was negative. Um, and so I would sort of side with Peter on this. Okay. Orly, you know uh, a fair amount about this trial. Um, Dr. Pfeffer and Dr. Solomon were heavily involved in this study. Um, I think they would feel differently than Dr. Lindenfeld and Carson? Well, I think the the issue is much more nuanced because while we have a neutral study with a non-statistically non significant p-value, we know that there were regional variations in study conduct. So I, I feel like it's not, um, it's difficult to dismiss. And therefore thinking about um, the totality of, of evidence, especially when it comes to some of the secondary analyses of the groups or individuals with an EF that was closer to 40%, so in that mildly reduced ejection fraction, in addition to the uh, post, again, post hoc, but still analyses showing uh, that there was likely non-adherence to study medication, not just the wrong patients, but probably uh, participants not actually taking the therapy. So that in combination with some of the post hoc analyses makes me um, uneasy to dismiss it completely. Uh, so I would, I have a difficult time, but I would push back against both Joanne and Peter on this. So, in this exercise, you have to vote yes or no or, or abstain. Yes or no for a... For an expanded indication of I spiral. I vote yes. Okay, good. Bill, um, you're, you're hearing some of your colleagues here roll in. Uh, when we do the adcom, we people are... Uh, there's not a Bayesian influence of the previous votes, so uh, we'll have to we'll have to do this differently on round two, but... Uh, what are your thoughts here? I mean, obviously, um, if what I would say is if we had the right monitoring and uh, surveillance structure, remember this was an NIH trial, This, these two countries may have been like how we treat sites that aren't adherent or violate inclusion exclusion criteria. We remove them from the analytical data set before uh, the database is locked. Yeah, I think that's right, Chris. And, you know, I do think that this is one of the limitations of NIH funded studies is that there are a lot of things that one can't do 
to really uh, rigorously monitor sites during the conduct of the trial. And we generally, uh, you know, only surface these issues after the trial is completed. And in many ways, uh, you know, it penalizes uh, those studies. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, as you're quite aware, at the NIH about uh, the plethora of negative studies, you know, sponsored by NIH in the cardiovascular arena. There are a few positive ones, but there are more negative than positive ones. And I think part of it is, it, you know, relates to some of these uh, issues around execution. But coming back to TopCat, I think, you know, Orly has stated the position quite well. I think it is much more nuanced. I don't think that trials should live or die by their primary endpoint, but really uh, a, a look at the totality of evidence, understanding the study, understanding its execution, looking at the evidence, uh, looking in particular at, uh, in this case, I think some of those secondary endpoints. Uh, there seems to be uh, a robust signal for a reduction in heart failure hospitalization uh, in these patients. And, you know, there are other studies uh, of spironolactone used in the setting of HEFPEFs uh, that have uh, suggested improvements in exercise capacity and functional status and quality of life. And when I think about this from a risk-benefit standpoint in a population of patients for whom there is little GDMT available, now we've got emerging secubitrol valsartan and certainly the SGLT2 inhibitors, but we don't have the same treatment options for HEFPEF that we have for HEFREF. Uh, to me, I think making this available to our HEFPEF patients, uh, you know, with, uh, let's say, for lack of a better term, the endorsement of the FDA uh, by expanding its label makes sense. Really well said, Bill. John, uh, and so your vote is yes, I assume, Bill. Yes. Oh, that puts John at a very difficult position. <laughs> I, it's, it's a position that I am more than happy to accept in this case. Uh, so, so I will vote yes. And I vote yes for the reasons that both Orly and, and Bill gave. And, and also to add that, especially in the context that this is a label extension, this is not a new clinical you know, drug entity that we don't know its safety profile and we don't know the other things, aspects of this drug. So what we're really looking at is, is there, you know, is there a potential for benefit in this label extension? And I certainly, even though the interaction effect, the interaction effect was not positive for the primary endpoint. You're right, it's 0.12. But the cardiovascular mortality interaction effect was significantly, um, was significant. And so here we have that kind of signal. We have such a marked change between the two programs in terms of their event rates and other things such as the patient population in Russia, Georgia, as you alluded to, Chris, I think these countries would have been shut down in any other types of monitored um, program. Um, you didn't see changes in potassium. You didn't see changes in blood pressure. These patients were effectively not getting therapy. Um, and so when you looked at the patients who were getting in, in a randomized manner within an area and the healthcare systems that we understand, he showed a definitive benefit. So I'm, I would have voted yes. And I know Peter will never speak to me again, yet again. The things you have to discount, again, I could, I see both sides here, but the, the things you have to discount in the study are not just the effect of the, the area of Georgia, right? You have to discount that the benefit is less and less as you get up into what we might call real HEFPEF, right? I mean, the well, benefit. and that's... And that's so, a I mean, great there's one thing that you have to discount to say this is a treatment for all hip hip patients. Well, that's a great theme we're going to talk about in our next round. Oh. But uh, let, um, let me just, Chris, can I just uh, yeah. bring one more point in? I, and and Orly uh, pointed this out. It, it, it's not just the design of the trial had an issue that that allowed for inappropriate patients to be easily entered, but there was the conduct of the trial, and that mm -hmm. was known during the study that these patients had a very low event rate. You know, in, in iPreserve, um, when we thought the Russian patients were being enrolled too easily and we were worried about it, we capped their enrollment. We stopped it. And as it turned out, we didn't have an issue in terms of event rate. So I'm not sure how uh, to look at the notion of saying that uh, the trial conduct, unfortunately, because of some issues relating to the NIH, um, really uh, damaged the ability to see a what the effect of this drug really was. 
So that's, uh, I'm not sure that that pulls along the idea of uh, approval, at least it doesn't for me. Well, and it, as they say, it is what it is. Um, you know, the, we, I don't think the trial would have ever gone to Georgia and Russia if enrollment in the United States was robust. And that, that's one of the big problems of, that we're trying to address in the collaboratory. And, uh, and, and the other thing is, is that the monitoring, monitoring strategy in NIH trials is allowed to be less robust. And so the data the Data Safety Monitoring Board got was late. The patients were already in and randomized before they could start figuring out that these were low event rate patients and likely didn't have heart failure that were entered into the trial. But let's move on to Paragon HF. Uh, this was a program, uh, really important program that came to the advisory committee. Uh, did not meet its primary endpoint nominally with a p-value of 06, but yet received a overwhelming uh, endorsement from the committee, 11 to 1, and, uh, and a label expansion did occur uh, with, this, uh, with this drug. Uh, what do you think was different? I'll, uh, we'll go in the same order. Peter, why, why, why a label expansion? Why, um, why were people able to take one trial with a p-value of 06 and say, that's enough evidence? Well, uh, this one, I'll, I'll say I would have voted yes on. Um, but the reasons um, why, first off, um, you know, it came close. It was a big, well-done trial. They learned uh, from iPreserve and from TopCat important lessons about enrolling an appropriate population. And so they were very cautious about what they got. Um, they then did uh, their, their follow-up and came very close to the primary outcome. Interestingly enough, the, this point six did involve the use of adjudicated data for heart failure hospitalizations and cardiovascular deaths. And what became remarkable was the data that showed that about 500 events were not accepted by the uh, adjudication committee as being worsening heart failure in one form. Now, the, the committee used a uh, granular definition, uh, series of definitions required specific criteria. Dr. Tierlink will talk about more about that later, I'm sure. But um, the investigators were not required to do that. So therefore, perhaps they had a broader view of worsening heart failure than what the committee did. And when you then take the uh, investigator reported events, you now cross statistical significance and you get very close to what the original agreement with the FDA was. It's interesting. There was a, a one-tailed p-value that was also part of, I think, the initial agreement. But even with the two-tailed p-value, when you look at the investigator reported events, they are uh, you then cross into statistical significance. If you then add, expand the endpoint a little bit with the outpatient events, then maybe it gets a little stronger, but you have reached statistical significance by using the investigator-reported events. And there was also, Chris, you may want to go after this later, uh, the look that the FDA suggested as a proportional contribution of heart failure to an event that was not considered to be heart failure. Mm -hmm. And this involved a re-adjudication by some heart failure uh, endpoint uh, mavens, and once again, a series of uh, findings were shown that, again, moved in the direction of support for secubital valsartan. And the last thing I think is that, and, and you indicated this going into it, that this is a, really ended up being an expansion of the indication of secubital valsartan, that the, a drug that the FDA was comfortable with, and that then moved out of having a strict EF cut off at 35% to be higher. So I think for all those reasons, I thought there, when you look at the totality of the data, uh, there was a lot there and I thought it there was benefit. Joanne, you never agree with Peter twice. 
No, I can't. But but today I do. I, I think, um, <laughs> you know, again, I think that while patients with HEPPEF don't have a lot of treatments, I, I'm not sure that means we want to approve something if we're not certain. Because other treatments come up like the SGLT2 inhibitors and maybe something else will come up. And so, but you don't ever take them away unless some unsuspected safety issue comes out. Mm -hmm. so, but I agree with Peter that also the point that he made, I think, is that um, is how are endpoints adjudicated? You know, are they face-to-face -face mm -hmm. committees? Are they online committees? And I, 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 I'm biased by the face-to-face -face committees, but I think they sometimes do a better job than online going in where things just go happen very rapidly. So th this issue of changing, um, you know, this was a very large number of endpoints that were changed and changed the endpoint um, from investigator. And usually, the, I don't remember the exact percentage, Peter, you may, but usually nowhere near this many of the endpoints are changed from the investigator adjudicated endpoints. This was, was a very about 25%, I think. It was yeah, that. that's a huge number compared to what is usually done. So mm -hmm. that's what influences me a little bit here for a slightly uh, different reason. Um, so, you know, I, I think probably there was enough data here to really, really um, think about this. But I, I would argue with one point that Peter made and someone else made on the previous discussion is I think just because something is an extension um, doesn't mean we should have, I think, less criteria. I, the safety issue aside, and safety is important, we have data about safety, but is it effective or not? You know, I think that mm -hmm. should be the primary thing. And so you leave on, I think on both of these dis discussions, there is uncertainty. Um, but I would have probably, I think the data is better enough here that I would have said yes. Fantastic. Orly? I am two out of two voting yes. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to agree uh, with what's been stated so far and exactly for the reasons that have already been stated. And not much to add, except that in addition to um, spironolactone, Sacubitrobalsartan also has data to suggest that the benefit is more pronounced in individuals with uh, an EF that is below normal. Um, mm -hmm. So from that standpoint, I think we... It, a story emerges that at least for neurohormonal agents, that systolic dysfunction does appear to, to matter and maybe uh, an element that could be uh, amenable to treatment, at least with sacubitril valsartan and with spironolactone. So while there's not an efficacy cliff as you go from low EF to high EF, there does appear to be a cliff on the mortality signal. Um, Bill? Yeah, no, I, I would vote yes as well. Uh, you know, I'll make a couple of points. One, uh, you know, I think we have to not be so focused on a fixed p-value of 0.05. Uh, you know, this has become sort of the coin of the realm for success or failure in a clinical trial. But it really is all about, uh, you know, uncertainty, right? And uh, a p-value of 0.06 versus 0.05 means that I'm just 1% less certain than I would otherwise be if that p-value were 0.05. It's, it's, it's a very small incremental difference. And when one looks at the totality of data and balances risks versus benefits, and then, you know, one needs to balance the degree to which one is willing to live with some uncertainty. Uh, I've seen very few clinical trials that are certain, uh, right? There's uh, always some degree of uncertainty, uh, uh, you know, more, more or less. So, you know, here I thought the uh, degree of uncertainty was relatively small. Uh, we quibble about a p-value of 0.05 versus 0.06. Uh, you know, if that's what we have to quibble about, uh, you know, we're probably, uh, you know, losing the... Uh, you know, what do they say? The forest for the trees. So, so uh, you know, that's one point that, you know, that I would make. The other thing, I, I, I do agree with Orly, you know, it appears that norhormonal inhibitors and antagonists uh, exert a greater treatment effect in patients with reduced ejection fractions. And perhaps our definition of a reduced ejection fraction needs to change. We use cutoffs of 35 or 40%. Maybe it should be 50 or 55% you know, as a cutoff. And the more one gets to a normal or toward a supernormal LVEF, uh, you know, the, the treatment effect of neurohormonal inhibitors and antagonists seems to diminish. And I will just uh, contrast that with what I think is the case with hemodynamically active therapies for 
heart failure, uh, such as pulmonary artery pressure guided heart failure care. Joanne's done a lot of work in that area, you know, which seems to be as of as effective in true HEFPEF populations as as uh, as it is in patients with any degree of reduction of LV ejection fraction as uh, as well. So, uh, you know, I think that EF might matter here a bit. And and maybe there's also an upper limit, like you're suggesting. Uh, I think all of you suggested that something above 55, uh, maybe there's attenuation. We've talked about cardiac amyloid and things like that. John, what's your, you going to be the consensus or, or no? We're going to make it unanimous, buddy. Wow. Ooh, okay. Uh, so so I, I'm going to go yes on this one as well. And um, as Peter alluded to, I think I think you know this trial is is a bit of an outlier in terms of its the the endpoints in the adjudication mm -hmm. process, and it was rather striking how many investigator reported events were thrown out. Um, but but that being said, when you looked at the investigator reported, the adjudicated, the probabilistic analysis, and the sensitivity analysis, all of those rate ratios in terms of the beneficial effect all centered around being between 0.84 and 0.87. So regardless of how you looked at it, the, the observed treatment effect was similar. Whether it hit, whether it was 0.014, which it was with the investigator reported, all the way up to 0.059, depended on how many events you had, not necessarily you know, the, the distribution per se. So, so that's actually fairly compelling for me to say this is a real benefit. And in the context of agreeing with what Joanne said in terms of we shouldn't change necessarily our efficacy requirements when we're doing expansion of label, but it does liberate us a little when we're looking at the benefit to risk because mm -hmm. we already have a good estimate of what the risk is in general. Um, obviously, HEF-PEF patients may have different comorbidities and different balance of comorbidities than HEF-REF. But nonetheless, we already had the largest heart failure trial ever done in Paradigm where we saw a very good safety profile with secubitral L-sartan. So anyway, so I'd, I'd vote yes and uh, am happy to give this agent to my HEFPEF patients without supernormal EF. Well, this, can, I, this... can I make one more comment on this? Yeah. One of the concerns about data, which isn't certain, is that in HEFREF, we've built one therapy on top of another. And one is when one is therapy is approved with a strong recommendation, then it's required if tolerated for subsequent studies. We do have some data in HEFPEF, but we don't have the same, okay, this is strong data, so everybody needs to be on this before you start this. So we don't have the same idea about building therapies like we do in HEFREF. And that, that's one concern, I think. That's a really good point because they're all sort of coming out late uh, in, in our development experiences and they're, and they're coming out with, with some wins and, uh, but haven't had time to use them as background therapy. Chris, uh, Chris, you know, I might add, I mean, you know, this is a great role for our guideline writers, right? You know, to try to help uh, order these and make some recommendations, perhaps based on the strength of the data about what to use first, right? So if we think there's more uncertainty with uh, spironolactone than we do with an SGLT2 inhibitor, you know, the SGLT2 inhibitor might be used first, right? So, so, so I agree with Joanne. We do have to think about levels of evidence very carefully, uh, and make sure that we're making, uh, I think, rational recommendations to ourselves and to other clinicians about, uh, you know, what the you know sort of ordering of these therapies and and what you know represents you know optimal guideline directed medical therapy in this population today. Very well um, said. Chris, just one other point just percolated through a, a couple of the statements that people made, and that is what about this higher EFs group, where the signal seems to certainly attenuate it and the benefit that we saw with spironolactone in, in this trial also with secubitral valsartan. It's true to some extent with empagliflozin, and maybe a little less so with GAPA. But that still remains uh, an area in that higher EF, that really normal group, who those patients are. In my mind, do they really have heart failure or do they have some other abnormality? You alluded to amyloid as being possible, and that certainly is true. Some trials are now going to a lot of effort to make sure amyloid is excluded in this population. But that is a, 
a bit of a frontier that we still have. Yeah, maybe maybe the trials that are trying to maximize singles will take a high level cutoff on EF so that it could get could drop into a label. I think there's been a struggle about EF cutoffs uh, in labeling. I, I was actually in favor of uh, an EF less than 55 for this uh, indication, but uh, it wasn't studied that way, nor was that the, you know, the split was at 57. So that's, you know, what clinicians are going to measure 57. Um, let's go to the the last adcom that we had, uh, this one is fresh and and many of our minds, uh, perhaps uh, more controversial, with omicamptin bicarbol indicated for patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction coming to the advisory committee, uh, which in and of itself is a decision that's made uh, by the regulatory agency. Whether something comes to the advisory committee or not means that there probably is some uh, uh, need or want for some external uh, opinions and uh, um, uh, advice. And, uh, and this uh, presentation done by the, the sponsors and the FDA, uh, the, the vote was unfavorable, three to eight. Uh, and a lot of issues came up, though, about the development. I mean, there were just an amazing number of issues, whether a large subgroup could stand by itself, whether uh, a phase two is an independent trial as a confirmatory trial for phase three whether the intermediate endpoints in heart failure are good enough to stand as a second uh, confirmatory trial. And uh, some, I think, general misunderstandings about the data in general when it came around to the heart failure events and safety. But uh, lots on the table here. And we'll start with Peter, who is sitting in Rehoboth. And, and uh, I don't know which way, he, what he's going to say. Well, uh, Chris, what you sometimes see the congressional committees and they, they say, I cede my time to, and then they designate someone. So in this particular circumstance, I'm going to cede, if you don't mind, I'm going to cede my poll position here to Dr. Tierlink because I am worried that the atmospheric river is going to wash him out before he gets a chance to speak. So it, it, can I uh, cede my time? initially to Dr. Tierlink and then come back a little bit later. Yes. But if he takes all your time, you're done. John, go ahead. I mean, you got, John has a lot invested here. So I wanted to. Well, yeah. And, and I think, you know, as full disclosure, obviously, um, you know, I've been involved with this development program for 20 years and was primary author on multiple papers on the, in this regard. Um, I think there were a number of general issues that came up from this adcom that, that have kind of brought to the bear. One of which is, you know, I think it 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 made very evident that there needs to be representation of the heart failure community on adcoms dealing with heart failure um, agents. It also revealed some of the limitations of the Zoom format. Um, you know, there was clearly less discussion or interaction of members. There was no time for sponsor responses to questions, even when additional analyses were requested. There was no time allocated to that being given. Um, and then there were patently false statements that were repeated and then became truth during the course of the of the the um, adcom. So th those were some of the general things. Also, while the vote was three eight, um, it was uh, you know three four, and then among the eight, three of those eight said, "Well, if the question had been a little different, I would have voted for it." So so there so there was also some challenge with in this setting how the FDA frames some of the questions as being absolutes as opposed to allowing some of the nuance that actually the sponsor tried to present. As many of you know, the trial was overall had a positive primary endpoint. And so it met its primary endpoint with a PVL of 0.025 and 8% reduction. Um, the sponsor went to the FDA and said, you know, it's an overall positive trial, but we actually think it's even better in lower EF patients. So we, we'd consider just having it in lower EF patients. That discussion, despite the sponsor saying that's where we wanted to go, where they wanted to go, was not um, really embarked upon during the, the meeting. So there were a number of things that emerged from this that I think were, were uh challenging and uh you know the, the uh the there were also a request by the FDA to have the committee members 
deal with regulatory issues that I don't believe any of us would have been qualified or or educated enough to deal with. So, um, you know, I certainly, even though I studied it, am not up to speed on what kind of therapies would require a companion ther compa companion diagnostic device. Um, and I, in terms of what is considered substantial and sufficient evidence, the FDA outlined their own draft document um, that I'm not sure everybody on the committee had time to read or take into consideration. So there were many aspects to this ADCOM that I think did this particular uh, proposal a great injustice, especially since this agent has the potential to really help and, and address a major unmet need in the heart failure community. I think what uh, you, you got most of it well well said, and 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 I think what John is saying is opportunities here for for maybe uh, making things better, so looking at things differently. Joanne, you've been involved in this process for I haven't a had a chance to read. This was very complex deliberation, as John said, and I haven't had the chance to read the transcripts yet. So um, and I also have done a very minor amount of consulting for cytokinetics, so I should disclose that. But to me, it was a positive trial. The effect size was very small, but it was a positive trial. And um, I'm not sure, John, if they asked for a separate conclusion, but to me, it's the job of the FDA. And that's what I said, we will approve you if you have a positive trial and we don't see any glitches in that, we will approve you for what your primary endpoint was. And then to me, sort of a, a corollary with what Bill said earlier, it's the job of the guidelines committee to say, should you use it or when would you use it? But to me, this was a positive trial. And so, you know, again, I haven't had a chance to go through all the weeds, but on the surface of it, I would have proved it saying you had a very large trial. There were no safety issues in this specific trial. There is some supported data and it was a positive trial. So I think something that um, John mentioned is absolutely key, which is an unmet need. So while, yes, we have we have a positive trial, period, that should have us all at hello, right? Um, the fact that in addition to that, we don't have a lot of options for severely ill patients with heart failure on the lower EF spectrum, whose therapies may be really limited to things that are anecdotal used, such as milrinone, or advanced therapies for which a lot of patients may not qualify, such as uh, invasive therapies, ventricular assist device, or cardiac transplant. So short of those, there are not a lot of options with, for this particular group of heart failure patients. And this is where um, the importance lies in providing uh, something, you know, an, an option besides uh, ones that have either not been studied appropriately or ones that may be limited in terms of access. And so, Orly, um, you would be in favor of, while the trial was overall positive, I think people were concerned that the um, that signal, um, while significant, the, that strength of that signal was more maximal in the low EF. Would you be in favor of uh, a restricted um, uh, indication in that low EF subgroup of the of the trial? I don't think the indication should restrict it. I think the clinicians and again guidelines should weigh in and provide. Um, more input on specific clinical scenarios that would lend themselves well to the use of this drug. So I, I would hesitate to put a limit on the in, on the, mm -hmm. the label itself. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have no conflict of interest here, and and I want to commend the study sponsor for actually going into these discussions with uh, FDA and an advisory panel uh, looking for a. Let's let's call it a a high responder group or a higher responder group, uh, because while I agree with the comments that Joanne and Orly have made about uh, p values and and the posit positivity of studies, you know I do think uh, it's important uh, again in looking at the totality of data to consider the clinical meaningfulness of the effect as well, and whether that be taken on by an advisory panel or a guideline writing committee, it's something we have to think about here. So. The fact that the study sponsor looked at at subgroups, particularly, 
you know, this this sort of higher risk subgroup with fewer options uh, for treatment, uh, I think was a terrific thing to do. So, you know, whether the label speaks only to that subgroup or to the whole population and the guidelines, uh, you know, help uh, recommend which patients might benefit most from it, you know, there does seem to be a, a potential role for this agent in the treatment of heart failure patients. You know, that's re really well said. I mean, I think we, we pre-specify subgroups and then we test for interactions and the overwhelming majority of the interactions, you know, don't meet our criteria of what is statistically significant. In this case, this was a very robust interaction. And I think if we're going to test for interactions and you get something really robust, not like a p-value of 0.1, uh, uh, then then it does have meaning and 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 uh, and I think it can it can help amplify and understand a, a signal. Well, we've got Peter. We get a little time. You get a little time. Okay. Um, so, uh, moderator uh, McCarthy. I mean O'Connor. Um, let, let me. Uh, so I, I'm going to be the outlier again here. I guess I have to be. Um, but within the briefing document, I think the comment was made, I just can't quite find it looking through here, that at an, at an earlier meeting with the FDA, um, cytokinetics was told that the trial would have to reach, sorry, Bill, to get onto a p-value again, but it would have to reach a statutory, a statutory stated approvable value, which would be, I think it was 0025. And um, so this was, this was one of the statements in the briefing document that sort of led off um, what was a pretty harsh uh, briefing document. And I guess what I would ask people is, um, what about that? Because we used to hear that for many years about you're required to have two clinical trials and uh, at a statistically positive uh, level or one that was very, very statistically Positive. And the FDA's contention then was that this trial did not reach that statutory limit. And I think they then said, well, uh, the, the, the key secondary, I think the first secondary was, was cardiovascular mortality and there was no benefit really there. And then that put a blocker on looking beyond that. So I, I'm trying to, I, I tried to come to terms on this particular study when asked uh, in a sort of minor consulting role earlier before the uh, advisory panel, I, I said I thought the drug would go through in part because of the experience or sequence. So let me just bring up then those two issues and ask um, my distinguished colleagues what they think. This statutory requirement that the FDA has said a trial should meet and I think all of us may have been in those meetings where we were told this is what it's going to be. And if your trial is not going to reach that level, well, uh, that will be a problem. We'll look at the totality data is the fallback. That became limited a little bit by the cardiovascular mortality signal. But then um, that, that, that is the first issue that I would ask. I'm wondering what people think about that in terms of going forward. John? Yeah, so so if I may clarify, what the FDA had said was that if the that there was that the single trial that if you hit 0.0025, absolutely, then it would would get there. If you went less than 0.05, and your cardiovascular mortality was not bad and trending toward positive, then that would count. Um, and so the you know. And your your analogy to Versaquat is very salient here because uh, p-value of, of galactic HF was 0 0.0025 0 with an 8% reduction. And Chris, you can correct me on this, but I think uh, Victoria was 0.02 something as well with a 10% reduction in their treatment effects. So very similar treatment trials. Um, and so, so it's the... It's strange that in the committee that there was the trial was penalized a bit because it didn't because it showed that actually this agent that improves cardiac performance didn't change cardiovascular death, um, and and it showed that it was very safe in terms of its mortality signal, and yet that seemed to to 
not work in its favor. Um, and I think Joanne had a comment. No, not to take the focus off coma cancer, but you can ask yourself if we need one trial that has a trend toward positive cardiovascular mortality that's significant, or two trials if it doesn't, then how many do we need if we're going to do retrospective evaluations of initially negative trials? Is one retrospective evaluation of a negative trial adequate? Which is what we've said, right? Twice here. I think we have to be careful about how we think of these things. Sorry, You're I couldn't resist. Uh, yeah, you, you couldn't resist, Joanne. But I, but I think, you know, what... I, I think what we're we we didn't get on that track. I think what John put is that a number of diabetic drugs were approved because with guidance that the upper uh, level of the confidence interval around mortality fell under a range, whether it was one point three or one point one, and here the upper uh, level of the confidence interval on mortality was less than one point oh nine. I think, and so. Um, uh, I think reinforcing what John said is the, the safety of this drug, but um, I, you know, tough, uh, tough decision. The advisory uh, committee is only advisory, so uh, I think the fact that there was healthy debate and there are still some dangling participles around some of these concepts that were allowed to s stay in, as you highlighted, with some of the limitations of the current format of the Adcom committee, to stay in play. Uh, Will will be sort of uh, re-reviewed by by the FDA. In my opinion, I know that a number of people are are making communications to the FDA to to do such. Um, Peter, um, so I think the other issue that came up and um, for the for Topcat uh, and for Secubitril Valsartan, I don't think the FDA was finding that there might be a safety signal. But the FDA did become, Chris, you know this very well, very involved in the notion of whether there was a safety signal relating to Omicaptive. Now, there is no safety signal that one saw regarding either adjudicated uh, myocardial infarction or unstable angina events or those that were reported. But there was this signal, uh, there was this concern about the the drug accumulation and the adjustment for dosing. And that then I think presented another lens that they saw the drug through. And it did seem like looking through the briefing document and then also some of the discussion that day, it was an issue that they would not let go of. Uh, so let, let me just bring that in because that is a little different than what we have in the other trials. Concern about the safety of the drug, even though you had an over 8,000 patient trial with no with no increase, no appreciable increase in ischemic events of any kind. John? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how, yes, there was uh, a lot of perseverance on that. There was also um, some discussion of how the, the sponsor was actually asked to, pre to present a no drug monitoring model, which they did, and then they were criticized for putting that forward. Um, uh, the The intention was always to use, uh, you know, some degree of initial therapeutic drug monitoring with the initiation of this, which is what was done Galactic HF. And in, even despite the SIP variants and everything else that existed in that eight thousand patient trial, there was no bad signal. And when they did the final risk to benefit ratio, they forgot to include the fact that omicamptin macarbol significantly reduced the stroke risk with over 190 events in the trial. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the overall MACE, you know, the, the extended MACE, the heart failure MACE, there is actually, once again, a 0.01 benefit in terms of omicamptin macarbol. So the, the I agree, the briefing document and, and then the discussion was really driven by certain issues that I'm not sure were as constructively discussed or, or um, or is relevant to the overall discussion. Well, let me just bring in the the other point, John, that, that um, I mentioned and, and you were caught up on also, and that is the idea that verisequat, which would be another drug in more or less the same space of advanced heart failure patients, went through. So, um, was it that there was not a detected safety signal? that the FDA was concerned about because as we looked at the uh, the risk ratio, at least the primary outcome, p-value, et cetera, were pretty similar. 
So there have been multiple changes that have gone on, you know, at the FDA in terms of people involved in in the different programs and things. There have been other things that have occurred, such as with the um, Alzheimer's drug. So there's there's a change in the environment there, for one thing. The second thing was, and and Dr. Stockbridge led the meeting off with this, saying that, well, with, with Verisiguat, there was a non-significant 7% change in, in, in beneficial change in cardiovascular death, which mm-hmm. is a p-value of 0.12. And Omicampton Macarbel did not have that. You know, it was neutral. It, it didn't save lives. It didn't, you know, hurt people. So I that was the distinguishing characteristic that Dr. Stockbridge started the meeting off with that kind of difference to try to actually take Verisiguat off the table as a comparator. Yeah, I, I think that's... Is that fair, Chris? I, I think that was accurately uh, described. Well, we, was, we're... Or, or was the difference simply Chris O'Connor? No, I don't I don't think it was Chris <laughs> O'Connor. But uh, look, we, we've brought up a lot of important <laughs> issues today. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to speak, folks. I, I was not in the I know. You are a government, government agent. I'm a, <laughs> a government employee. employee. I couldn't and, do it. And, and, and maybe that's something we should look into, too. I'm not sure why government employees in different I, branches can't speak. I, I meant for Victoria, Chris. <laughs> no, I know. But, well, that's um, why I gave John my time. Uh, and, he, and John used it well. John used it well. You, you clarified a lot of good things, John. Thank you. But uh, this panel has raised a lot of issues, you know, uh, amongst all three ad comps. And uh, we've come up with a few. Uh, important, uh, I think, suggestions, some ways that we can maybe improve the ecosystem. That's the goal of the Heart Failure Collaboratory. How can we improve the ecosystem? But I just want to personally thank each and every one of you for taking time out today. Joanne from uh, sunny uh, uh, sunny Florida there with the palm trees and uh, uh, making us all envious of where you are. But uh, for, for this component of Heart of the Matter podcast and collaboratory, I want to say thank you. I've learned a lot and I think our audience has too. So have a great day and we'll we'll talk again. Thank you.